Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this is another episode brought to you thanks to the largesse of my supporters over at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom. Their generosity means more content for everyone, so thank you to each and every one of you. This time out, we're playing a book by oddball children's author J.H. Brennan. We've met him a couple of times before, and each time is a wild adventure into the realms of unbridled creativity and severely curtailed design skills. We played a Grail Quest book, which was quite funny but highly scattershot, and a frankly insane retelling of Frankenstein, which appeared to have been written in a fever dream and also didn't work properly. Most of his books are aimed squarely at younger readers. He has a chatty, informal style, which veers between charming and deeply irritating, sometimes in the same sentence. This time we're playing a game book from another series he did, which allegedly have a slightly more mature tone. We're playing Sagas of the Demon Spawn Book 1, Fire Asterix Wolf. Will this be any more coherent than the last effort? I've already looked at the character creation rules, and I have to say it seems doubtful. Let's dive in and see if you agree with me. Now, I don't normally script the character creation part of the intro, but I feel like I have to write some notes just in order to keep track of everything, because the crazy is kicking in straight away with this one. For starters, even though the back cover calls this a solo fantasy game book. In the text, J.H. Brennan insists it should be referred to as a participation novel, which makes it sound like a mandatory team-building exercise when you go into the woods with an excitable stranger and find new ways to loathe the people you work with. He also uses the word figure when anyone else would use the word score, so instead of referring to your luck score, he refers to your luck figure. Just another little oddity from the master of clunky writing. I will say that the book has a pretty nice cover showing uh, a fantasy landscape with what looks like a castle in the distance and a snake and a sword in the foreground. It's very, very 1980s. I really rather like it. should say that the illustrations are by Jeff Taylor and the map is by Ken Lewis. So look forward to that map at some point. Um, it was released by Fontana Books in 1984. Now, fighting fantasy books have hit a sweet spot with the three attributes they use as a core. Skill, stamina and luck give you a simple fighting mechanic, a measure of health and well-being, and a way to randomly determine the outcome of everything else. Fire Asterix Wolf has all three of these attributes, and then adds another five. Yes, five for good measure. Seven of them are randomly generated, but the skill stat works completely differently. So the attributes are Strength, Speed, Stamina, Courage, Skill, Luck, Charm and Attraction. Yes, there is both Charm and Attraction. For reasons I doubt will become clear, J.H. Brennan feels the need to have two different versions of Charisma in a book which is 183 sections long. 
Now, every stat is generated by rolling 2d6. That doesn't sound particularly weird, Mr. Doom, you say. Well, you then multiply the result by 8, which gives a range of values from 16 to 96. Specifically, a range of 11 values between 16 and 96, but I digress. And it's sort of a percentile score. Now, that's kind of interesting, except for the fact that the book never actually asks you to roll a d100 because that would make sense. Instead, the book will sometimes ask you to test an attribute by rolling 2d6 and multiplying the result of that by 8. Is that functionally the same as rolling 2d6 against a stat in the range 2 to 12? Yes. Yes, it is. I'm already slightly tired. Now let's look at the combat, because there is plenty more crazy there. First, you need to generate your life points, which is done by adding all seven of the stats you've rolled together. Uh, this will give you a value which ranges from 112 to 672, which is quite a range. As always, the more charming and attractive you are, the healthier you are, which just makes sense. Now, let's get into the meat of the combat. You first need to work out who attacks first. You might think that this would be done with your speed stat, and you would be 33.3% right, because you do it by adding together your speed, courage, and luck scores, then adding 2d6 and doing the same for your opponent with the highest score going first. Uh, this secondary attribute, which he doesn't even bother to name, can range from 48 to 288. I foresee a lot of occasions when modifying this value by between 2 and 12 will make absolutely no difference to the outcome. Nothing quite like making your already cumbersome system largely unnecessary to really stick it to the player. Um, and it also means that your speed stat represents only a third of your actual combat speed, which makes total sense, obviously. So, having worked out who goes first, the combatants take it in turns to try and lamp each other. Which attribute governs this? Almost none of them, because you fight by rolling 2d6 and any roll of 7 or higher is a hit. There is a small way of modifying this. So, the target number can be reduced by 1 for every 10 points of skill you get. Now your skill starts at zero, but you gain more as a form of experience. And that's actually quite a nice idea for a secondary stat. But I'll be interested to see whether you can actually gain enough skill over the course of the adventure to get a useful bonus. Lastly, if your luck is 72 or higher, then you also get to reduce the target number by one. This means that having generated seven different stats, the likelihood is that whether you hit or not in combat will be a straight 50-50. I mean, it's sheer lunacy. Damage is dealt equal to the amount you rolled above the target number multiplied by 10. So if you roll exactly a 7, your base damage is 0. Fortunately, you can add your strength score divided by 8 to the base damage, along with any additional damage for weapons, and damage reduction from shields and armour. When someone finally manages to chip their opponent down to zero, which could take a very long time, they are dead. Are we done with the crazy? Not quite, because there's a little bit more, because you also 
get to use your stamina to work out how long you can fight without needing a little lie down. To work this out, you divide your stamina score by 10 and round down. This gives you the number of rounds you can fight before you have to have the aforesaid little lie down. You then rest for two rounds, during which you cannot attack, but your opponent can. Then you fight for another set of rounds based on your stamina, and then rest as, as needed. This means if you roll a double one for your stamina score, you will fight for only a single round before you need a rest, meaning that you actually only fight one round in three. Does this also apply to your opponent? It isn't specified. The simplest reading of the rules suggests that it doesn't, which makes stamina functionally the most important combat stat. Finally, the good news or bad news is that if you die, then you get to roll 2d6 and multiply the result by 8. If that result is less than your luck, you get to redo the fight from the beginning. So there's a cheat death mechanic, but it only works by bringing the player of the game significantly closer to the time of their actual demise. There's a strong feeling that my finite time on God's green earth is not going to be well served by this combat system. There's magic, apparently, but I'm not looking at that until it becomes relevant, because quite honestly, I can't face it. So, my goal for this adventure is to find a path that lets me make use of both charm and attraction, because I want to see the difference between these two completely unrelated stats and how that plays out. Now, let's generate a character. Character we play is given the completely insane name Fire Asterix Wolf, which is somehow even stupider than the ludicrous names I traditionally come up with every episode. So, Fire Asterix Wolf has the following stats. I rolled an 8 for strength, which gives me a strength of 64. I rolled a 4 for speed, which gives me a speed of 32. A 5 for stamina, which gives me a stamina of 40. A 5 for courage, which gives me a courage of 40. A 9 for luck, which gives me a luck of 72, which means I do get the luck modifier in combat. I rolled an 11 for charm, giving me a charm of 88, significantly more than I have in real life. And I rolled a double six for attraction, giving me a whopping attractiveness of 96. And even my mum wouldn't tell you that that's the case in real life. My skill starts out at nil. My combat speed, which is what I'm choosing to call the unnamed stat that's a combination of speed, courage and luck, is 144. My strength modifier is 6, meaning I do 6 additional points of damage every time I hit. I have an endurance of 4, meaning I can go 4 combat rounds before needing a rest. There we have it. Longest preliminaries ever. That's out of the way. I see nothing for it. I've been recording for almost quarter of an hour. Let's finally dive into Sagas of the Demon Spawn Book 1, Fire, Asterix, Wolf. Prologue. There is a picture of Fire, Asterix, Wolf. It is not good. I would describe him as Franz Frazetta. The Drinking Years would be my summation of the art style. Yeah, it's not great. It's just a guy with a sword in the middle of turning around, but he kind of looks like he's just Mr. Bus. Here we go. 
Towards the finish of their vernal rites, the astrologers began predicting a further coming of the demon spawn. Ulrich, the knight regent of the realm, whose monkish warriors would pay the blood price if the hellish swarm in fact arrived, took the oracle seriously and called the council. Strategies were laid, the work mainly of old Mandar, the phlogiston general, and Ben Benny Barjane, the shaman wizard. There was, as Ulrich rightly said, a little time, even granted the astrologers were accurate. There were only three short weeks in high summer, when the snow thawed in the mountain passes. Until then, the realm was safe. It was those same passes which preoccupied Bar Jane, who was convinced the Guild of Alchemists might be prepared to prepare a magic powder which would then have the power to cause rockfalls and thus block them permanently. Mandar, with his warrior's scepticism about matters magical, bent his attention towards a second line of defence, an interesting strategic mixture of direct confrontation and ambush. It was a measure of the times that no one commented on the immorality of ambush. I mean, ambush is a perfectly standard military tactic. Discussions on these and several less plausible alternatives ranged for days. Do they mean raged for days, or do they mean ranged for days? Ranged for days, apparently. There was little optimism abroad. The spawn, for centuries, had done much as they pleased, even when faced by a united realm led by a strong king. Today, there was dissension in the realm, and King Voltar the Magnificent still slept his magic sleep. Ulrich ruled by consent of the council insofar as anyone ruled at all. The social order survived more through habit and inertia than any real cohesion. Aha! It's set in Britain in 2022, is it? But could it survive the spawn? Optimism was in short supply outside the council too. I know how they feel. Even the peasantry, inured to disaster by generations of hardship, grew fearful. The nobility, with far more to lose in many instances, planned flight. The harbour masters in the two great ports of Xanthus and Begredi found themselves abruptly rich. But for all the bribes, there were only so many sailing ships and so very many more noble families. And if one did not take to the seas, where did one go? Won't someone please think of the rich? Despite firm pronouncements and firmer police action, the breakdown in public order was both manifest and widespread within days of the first prediction. Any other enemy might have caused concern but scarcely panic. The spawn, mercifully infrequent in their forays, created superstitious awe. Their resemblance to humanity was superficial. Their line descended to the pit of hell itself. And then, the astrologers, whose announcements had caused the panic in the first place, produced a glimmer of real hope. At the culmination of their vernal rites, they predicted the appearance of a new messiah. Might that messiah be us? We will find out. So that's the background. I would say it is absolute bargain basement fantasy cliche, but you know, perfectly serviceable for all that. Introducing 
lots of people with stupid names who I dare say we will never hear from again. But, you know, it's fine. So, part one, the outcast. Fire Asterix Wolf was dying. Do you think it should be Fire Asterix Wolf? Sort of running the fire and the Asterix together a bit? Or should it be like when your mum calls you using your full name? Fire Asterix Wolf, get down here this minute. I feel like I should give equal weight to both the words and the punctuation. Anyway, Fire Asterix Wolf was dying. After eight days in the wilderness, his strength was all but exhausted. His belly was no more than an aching void, his tongue large and lips parched. Legs, arms and chest were all streaked with his own blood. He could scarcely stand upright, let alone walk. Yet walk he did, in brief, staggering, swaying bursts, driven by the sheer power of his barbarian will. He no longer knew where he was going, only that he must not stop. He could no longer count the time since the men of his rock village had driven him out for the one offence their leader could not endure, and he recalled the offence itself. His cracked lips twisting in the semblance of a ghastly smile, for Alina had been too sweet to forget. She had only been sixteen years old, alive with virgin lusts, and only daughter of the chief. A potentially dangerous combination, and one to which Firewolf had all too easily succumbed. So, there we go, a bit of slightly more adult material. A little bit of sauce. They had been discovered, of course. The crone who stumbled on their naked entanglement in the storage cave had hobbled away screaming, and soon afterwards the warriors had come. Even knowing their inevitable fate, Fire Asterix, Wolf and Alina had awaited them at the sight of their sin. In the village there was nowhere to hide, outside there was nowhere to go. Fire Asterix, Wolf might have fought when the men came, but he did not. They had their duty to the chief, and several of them were his friends. What was the point in slaughtering friends? Had he managed to dispatch a score of them, a doubtful proposition to begin with, more would have come to take their place. A small postponement of the outcome would have made it no less inevitable. Surprisingly, the chief had not condemned him to the rock, possibly in deference to fire Asterix Wolf's prowess as a warrior. The sentence was exile, which amounted to death, but carried less of a stigma. So, they drove him out into the wilderness, allowing him his sword, his knife, his bow, and twenty arrows, but neither water nor provisions. It was certain death in the wasteland where no game ran, where water and the edible fungus which had been his staple diet since childhood were only found deep underground. He might, of course, discover another of the scattered stone villages which nurtured the tough wilderness barbarians like himself, but without the village mark he would be driven out at once, or more likely killed. So, for eight days he had wandered through the rock waste, his body fluid steadily leached by the constant volcanic heat emerging from the ground beneath his feet. On the fourth day, wearily, Clumsily, for he had already lost his fighting edge, he climbed a stone escarpment in the hope of discovering some rational goal, and in climbing he fell, gouging his body on the razor-sharp protrusions. Blood streamed from a dozen minor wounds and dried to give him the appearance of a monster, 
or a walking corpse. This is pretty wordy, but it's not bad, I would say. It's certainly a lot better than the prologue. However, I would quite like to make a decision at some point. How much longer could Fire Asterix Wolf endure? Fire Asterix Wolf knew the answer even as he asked himself the question. Not much longer. He wearily sank to his knees, bowed his head and felt the welcome comfort of soft grey fog descend on him. He might have embraced this fog, opened up his spirit to him as easily as his arms had opened to Alina. The fog promised him rest and freedom from pain, and Fire Asterix Wolf knew it spoke truly. The fog sounds an awful lot like Scrumpy, yet the twisted knot of flint determination in his soul would not permit him to embrace the fog. With a massive effort, he staggered once more to his feet. His eyes no longer saw, his ears no longer heard, his senses numbed almost beyond the reach of pain. Only his will moved him. Then he heard the voice. Hold still, fungus feeder! It seemed to come from a great distance, and as Fire Asterix Wolf swung his head wearily, he could not determine the source. Nonetheless, his hand dropped to his sword. It was a man's voice, and in the wilderness all men were enemies. The voice giggled. <laughs> Try to stick me, will you, fungus feeder? You're in no condition for a fight, that's for sure. Come on now, give yourself easement. Fire Asterix Wolf felt a hand upon his arm, tried to turn to face this new danger, or the same danger, for he was not certain, and in turning, stumbled, then fell not to the ground, but into darkness that extended endlessly. First fog, now darkness. Oh, God, this goes on for pages and pages. Oh, this is a terrible idea. Hey-ho. He awoke to coolness and returning strength, although his stomach churned and heaved, as if the Minorca malady had seized him. He squeezed his eyes tight shut and fought down the nausea, then opened them to examine his surroundings. He was in a cave, not the deep caves of his stone village for daylight streamed through the entrance only a few yards away, but a shelter which somehow cut down on the volcanic heat. A curiously musty odour assailed his nostrils, causing the gorge to rise again in his throat, but the worst of the nausea had obviously passed, for he felt no real urge to vomit. The cave was a habitation. There were skins in one corner to form a bed, and roughly worked clay pots for storage and cooking. Nothing else. He was alone. Carefully, Fire Asterix Wolf climbed to his feet. His legs trembled and his head reeled, but for all that he felt stronger in himself than he had done for days. His mouth was less parched. The swelling of his tongue receded. He moved towards the entrance of the cave. You're awake now, fungus feeder, are you? It was the same voice he had heard before he finally collapsed. Again, instinctively, his hand dropped to his sword, but it was no longer there. Save your strength, barbarian, the voice said. I took it from you for my own protection. I grow too old for rough and tumble, and while you're in no fit state to do me damage when I first set eyes on you, I could tell your strength would not desert you for long. Fire Asterix Wolf was staring at a slim, old man, bent over a rock crevice only twenty yards away. 
So there we go. Cross that one off your fighting fantasy bingo card. We have an old man. The gnarled hands held what appeared to be a length of twine. On the ground beside him lay Fire Asterix Wolf's weapons. Who are you? Fire Asterix Wolf asked thickly, no longer fearing his enemy now that he had seen him. If, indeed, this ancient was his enemy at all. Me? It doesn't matter. Call me Boulder. I like the sound of that, and I've forgotten my real name. What are you doing? Collecting water, Baldar said, since you managed to deplete my small supply. Unthinking, Fire Asterix Wolf said, There is no water at this level. Baldar snorted and withdrew a brimming pot from a crevice at the end of his twine. It is the nature of fools to believe the whole world is like their own backyard. This is not your deep wilderness, fungus feeder. Your sturdy legs carried you far before nature overcame them. Here, on the perimeter, a man may find surface water if he knows where to look. With no sign of frailty despite his advanced years, Baldar carried the pot back to the cave mouth. As he reached Fire Asterix Wolf, he placed one hand squarely on his chest to encourage him to return inside. Fire Asterix Wolf did not resist, his reluctance overcome by a mounting curiosity. Instead, he accepted the proffered pot and drank deeply. The water was warm, but good. He returned the pot and waited. There is a picture of Fire Asterix Wolf and Baldar. Low end of fine, I'm going to say. I actually quite like the old man. He's been drawn as a sort of almost kind of impressionistic crescent shape in really dark, dark colours. Uh, less impressed with Fire Asterix Wolf, but yeah, it's low end of fine. I'm right, aren't I not? Old Baldar asked. You come from the caverns of the deep wilderness. Fire Asterix Wolf nodded. Thought you had, though you didn't have a look at the fungus feeders. Too big. And the colouring's wrong. I was not native born to the wilderness, Fire Asterix Wolf said. I came to the stone village as a young boy. That much they told me, but how or why or where I came from, they would not tell. If they know, Baldar said, the barbarians are an ignorant lot. Fire Asterix Wolf held his temper in a leash. The old man had helped him, after all, and might be persuaded to help him further. Baldar seemed to catch the effort, for he grinned slyly. There's another point of difference. A real barbarian would have tried to kill me for the insult. You showed self-control. <laughs> or perhaps the gruel I fed you is still sticking in your stomach. But you'd better get used to real food, lad. You'll find no fungus here or anywhere else in Harn. Harn? Fire Asterix Wolf echoed. I Harn, the name of this godforsaken land. Harn, with its reflack mountains and its realms of Voltar the Magnificent, its deserts and its wilderness, its eastern seaboard by the tranquil sea, and its follies. Too many follies, but these may end soon if the rumours are true. The old man glanced at him shrewdly. Well, barbarian and fungus eater, do you have a name? I am called Fire Asterix Wolf, Fire Asterix Wolf said, enunciating the central guttural in the manner of the wilderness tribe. So fire... Ooh! Wolf. Is that sillier or less silly than Fire Asterix Wolf? Fire... <clears throat> wolf. I don't know. I'm going to keep saying Fire Asterix Wolf. A gooder name as any, Boulder said, and better than some. I take it you'll not be returning home. 
Fire Asterix Wolf shook his head. The caverns he had long called home were no longer open to him. Well, where shall he be going? Fire Asterix Wolf stared at him, wondering how to answer. It was a reasonable question, but one which he had not even momentarily considered. His whole attention had been concentrated on survival. But having survived, where in this strange country, this Han, did an exiled barbarian go? Eventually, he said, I do not know. Perhaps you'll know tomorrow, Baldar said. When you're stronger still, you'd better sleep now. While Fire Asterix Wolf, I literally just yawned, I'm so suggestible. While Fire Asterix Wolf meant to protest, he found he was indeed exhausted, so that he lay on the floor of the cave and swiftly fell into a dreamless sleep. The following day they talked a great deal more. Baldor, it transpired, was a hermit and had been for more than thirty years. He lived off what little the land had to offer, supplemented by the occasional offerings from fools who imagined him a holy man. He claimed to loathe company, although he accepted Fire Asterix Wolf's freely enough. On the day following, Baldar actually began to teach Fire Asterix Wolf the tricks of survival in the barren steppes on the edge of the wilderness. The twin suns rose and set day after day, and Fire Asterix Wolf totally regained his former stamina and strength. Is that the first reference we had to multiple suns? Page 32. Yup. Yep it is. He had long since retrieved his weapons and now took to practising with them to regain his former skills. Watching him one day, Baldar remarked, You're good enough to become a mercenary. Fire Asterix Wolf, although not so good as to stay alive mercenary for long. Fire Asterix Wolf grinned. He had now grown to like the old man, but thought this foolish. Baldar caught the expression and stood up. Let me show you then, ignorant barbarian, he said peevishly. There are two staves in the back of the cave. Bring them to me and we'll have a contest. You're lucky I own no sword, otherwise your lesson might have proved lethal. Humouring him, Fire Asterix Wolf fetched the staves. He was smiling as Baldar took one and dropped into a fighting stance. Then he roared with pain and fury as the old man's staff lashed out with unexpected speed to catch him, a fearful crack across the ankle bone bringing tears to his eyes and half-crippling his movements. By the gods! roared Fire Asterix Wolf. Old man or not, you'll pay for that! And suddenly there, on the edge of the wilderness, the fight was on. So, now I get some instructions for this incredibly bizarrely contrived fight. You are Fire Asterix Wolf. Young, strong, handsome, I am indeed, and barbaric. A man of lusts and tempers, arrogant in your certainties. The old man, this Baldar, has challenged you, and that is enough. You bear him no ill will, despite the crack on your ankle. All the same, he must be taught a lesson. That is the wilderness way. That is your way. So we can find the stats for Baldar on page 248. Oh, I see. We've got stats for every single possible monster that we can encounter. So there are 16 possible encounters according to this, uh, which means that you can actually theoretically gain enough skill to actually influence the outcome of combat. So that's encouraging. Jay's Brennan has thoughtfully provided 
all of the stats for all of the people you might encounter. So combat-wise, Baldar has, uh, I guess, strength of 48, speed of 36, stamina of 90, courage of 90, luck of 48. These are all the ones that could can theoretically influence combat. Just realised I don't think I calculated fire asterisk wolf life points. Okay, so I've got a, a life point total of 392, which is less than Baldar's 412, but not by much. I guess I'm going to roll quite a lot of dice. Let's have a look and see what Baldar's speed, courage and luck totals as well. Oh, this is such a horrible system. 174. So, uh, predictably, uh, there's no way that I can actually match his combat speed. My combat speed of 144 is too far below his combat speed of 174. Uh, but yes, um, so we're going to take it in turns kicking each other in the shins for what may take a while. Um, when life points on either side are reduced to 50 or below, surrender will be automatic, even if it reduces the life points to zero because um, it's not a fight to the death. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the old man after a mere 26 rounds of combat. And just think, if I'd lost and this was a fight to the death, my reward would be to test my luck and then potentially do the entire thing over from the beginning. I am so tired already. Anyway, I have won the battle. So, we get one point of skill. Baldur picked himself up, grinning sheepishly. It seems I underestimated you, Fungus Feeder, he remarked. Not a warrior with much finesse, but a, a fighter of some determination. He shrugged. Still, it's one thing to beat an old man. Quite another to survive the rigours of the Belgardium. Belgardium? Fire Asterix Wolf echoed, panting a little, for in truth the old hermit had proven a far tougher opponent than he had imagined. Yeah, indeed, he reduced me from 392 life to uh, 170. A town of generous proportions or a city of mean ones, depending on your viewpoint, Baldur said. It has a few claims to fame and only one of any great importance. I lived there for many years before I discovered my own company was preferable to that of thieves and scoundrels. I had a mind to send you there. Fire Asterix Wolf squatted with his back against a nearby boulder, eyeing the old man warily. Why should I wish to go to Belgardium? Well, I might say because you owe me your life, and even a wilderness barbarian must have some sense of obligation. Or I might say only that you're young, unrestless, an adventurous spirit with nowhere to go so that Belgardium is as good a destination as any. You might say all that with truth, Hermit, agreed Fire Asterix Wolf sagely. But then I should have to ask you why you wish me to go to Belgardium. Now that requires a fuller answer. Let us return to the cave and I shall give it to you. So, I've been recording for 45 minutes, and I have not made a single choice yet. In the cave, Baldar stretched out on the straw, as if his exertions had taken more of his energy than had been immediately apparent. Nonetheless, his voice was strong enough, as he said, Do not think, because you had 
find me scratching on the edge of the wilderness like a nomad that I was always thus fire asterisk wolf. I prefer my own company, as you know, but it may be that I should never have discovered this were it not for a series of misfortunes which befell me many years ago. Oh god, this goes on for pages. Oh, so, story time. I was a young man, once headstrong and tough, even as you are. I left the village where I was born and ventured into the world of Han to make my fortune. Fate took me to Belgardium, where I did indeed prosper, but at the expense of others, so that I made certain enemies, some highly placed. Not that this worried me, I was, as I say, headstrong. I was also in love, a great distraction from practical matters. I married a woman after some difficulties with her family, and we lived happily for two years before she died, marrying our first and only child, a daughter we had decided to name Yelena. The birth of Yelena gave me little joy. I was too heartbroken at the loss of my wife. I placed the child in care and plunged into my business activities in order to dull the pain. At that time, perceiving me weak and distracted, my most powerful enemies struck against me. The details are unimportant. Oh, thank heavens for small mercies. In enough to tell you that I was forced to flee, leaving Yelena behind and taking with me only a tiny fraction of my amassed fortune. Even this I quickly lost, so that for a time I wandered Han, surviving on my wits, and later on my developed skill as a fighter. I sent many a good man beyond the veil of death in those days, fire, asterisk, wolf, for I was both bitter and vicious. But the time came when I grew tired of killing, more tired still of those who hired me to kill. I met an old woman who must be long dead by now. Her name was Kirana, although few knew it, they call her the witch, or sometimes the oracle. I was a disbeliever in those days, but I found she had the power all right. She read my past, as a monk might read a scroll. And though we had little in common, befriended me. It was she who sent me here to the wilderness edge, having seen by her arts that certain of my old enemies still pursued me and would assuredly take my life. Corona predicted I would end my days here, by the edge of the wilderness, but that I would live happier while I lived here than at any time previously. I believe neither prediction then, although I believe them both now. A life such as I lead changes a man, makes him strong and self-sufficient, grants him vision and philosophy. These gifts are more precious than gold, fire, asterisk, wolf, and ultimately more satisfying even than adventure. So, you find me, and at any other time, you would find me uncaring of the world and its woes. But a day and a night before you stumbled half-dead over my horizon, I had a dream. I dreamed of my daughter, Yelena, now a woman and as beautiful as her mother ever was. I dreamed a great danger threatened her, although the nature of that danger I could not divine. In my dream I knew that if her life was to be saved, she must be hidden in a place so dangerous that no man would dare to follow her. The name of this place was revealed to me as Kral. Very convenient dream, almost as though the author is making it up as he goes along and suddenly realised he needed some way of conveying the contents of the quest to a man who's literally lived on his own for 20, 30 years. 
Kral, echoed Fire Asterix Wolf, who does a lot of that sort of thing, captivated by the old man's tale. Its nature and location are unknown to me, Baldar admitted, although I have travelled more widely than most in Harn. Nevertheless, I know it to exist, for I know I dreamed true. How is it that you know you dreamed true, old man? Fire Asterix Wolf asked cautiously. Because I saw another in my dream alongside fair Yelena. I saw a fierce young fungus eater from the cold caves of the deep wilderness. I saw you, Fire Asterix Wolf. And did you not come to me half dead though you were in a day and a night? He leaned forward, face and voice betraying his anxiety for the first time. Will you travel to Belgardium, Fire Asterix Wolf? Will you seek out Yelena and take her from that cursed place? Will you undertake to find a place called Kral and hide her there? Will you, Firewolf? Will you? So we now go to the uh, text. It's sort of like your internal monologue or your internal decision-making is all in, in italics, which is kind of cool. Um, although that's in the present tense, and for some reason the story is written in the past tense, even though the convention for adventure game books is to always write in the present tense. You can write in the past tense... If you're going to be consistent about it, that's not necessarily a problem, but it does create a very different feel. The present tense has the effect of involving you more in the action. So, will you, Fire Asterix Wolf, will you accept the tangled web of fate offered by this ancient hermit? You are free to refuse, to seek your destiny elsewhere. What do you really owe this Baldar? A fortuitous drink of water? A taste of nauseating food? But make up your own mind, Fire Asterix Wolf. If you decide to undertake the task he wishes, you can. If you want to refuse, uh, that's an option as well. So, um, am I going to refuse the call to adventure? I mean, of course I'm going to refuse the call to adventure. For the briefest instant, Baldar stared across the cave at Fire Asterix Wolf stunned. Then, despite his age and apparent exhaustion, he launched himself fiercely from the straw. Vermin! He screamed as he fell again upon the big barbarian, arms flailing wildly. So uh, that was the first choice we were allowed to make, by the way. Uh, I've been recording for nearly an hour. Although squatting on his haunches in the wilderness way and totally surprised by the ferocity of the attack, Fire Asterix Wolf recovered quickly. Rolling away nimbly from the old man, he sprang to his feet. Hold hard, Baldar, he called. I have no wish to injure you. It is only that I claim the right to make my own way in the world. Baldar was beyond reason. Scum! He shrieked, relaunching himself on the attack. Fire Asterix Wolf sidestepped, grinning slightly. He did not trouble to draw his sword, for the old hermit was unarmed. Nor was he unduly worried by the show of rage. In the stone village, rage and frustration were commonplace. Baldar tripped, half fell, then recovered and lashed out again. His fist caught Fire Asterix Wolf a glancing blow. He kicked hard at the barbarian's shins, but missed completely. Fire Asterix Wolf reached out, seeking to catch the flailing arms and pin them. Old though he was, Baldur moved fast, twisting like an eel. Fire Asterix Wolf felt a pinprick at his shoulder and noticed for the first time that the old hermit was clutching a sliver of sharpened bone, a weapon of desperation seized in the heat of the moment and fortunately too small to do much damage. Enough, old man! Fire Asterix Wolf exclaimed again, but there was no stopping Baldar, who attacked again and again like a demon. This time, however, Fire Asterix Wolf was ready, and as the old hermit closed with him, 
He flung his arms wide and then closed them in a fierce embrace. Baldur wriggled, struggled, but was pinned. Easily, Fire Asterix Wolf lifted him off his feet, taking some care, at least, not to hurt him unduly. Calm yourself, Hermit, he said sternly. You are too old for two fights in one day. Surprisingly, Baldar did calm. His muscles relaxed so that he hung limp in Fire Asterix Wolf's arms, but his eyes remained filled with anger. I shall release you if you promise to behave, Fire Asterix Wolf told him. I only wish the freedom to choose my own course, but I shall leave here at once since my presence disturbs you. Will you promise? Baldar remained dumb. His eyes turned to Fire Asterix Wolf's shoulder. Oddly, the pinprick from the sliver of bone was stinging fiercely now. Fire Asterix Wolf ignored it, tightening his grip a little so that Baldar gasped. Come now, old man, your promise. A sly look replaced the rage in Baldur's eye. You have it, Fungus Feeder, provided you leave me at once. You already have my word on that, said Fire Asterix Wolf, releasing him. Baldur backed away, eyeing him warily. Fire Asterix Wolf's shoulder had begun to throb. Nonetheless, alert for another attack, he picked up his few belongings and made for the mouth of the cave. I think Fire Asterix Wolf might be a moron. Farewell, old man, he called back. I thank you for helping me when I needed it and regret that I cannot help you in my turn. Half consciously, he placed a hand on his throbbing shoulder, suspecting an infection and wondering at the speed of its development. He stepped forward and found his head was swimming. He paused, feeling a growing weakness in his legs. He swayed. From behind him, distinctly, came Baldur's voice. Farewell, ungrateful wretch. It seemed to Fire Asterix Wolf that he spat upon the cave floor. Fire Asterix Wolf half-turned, with spots of darkness dancing before his eyes. His shoulder was on fire now, the bones within his legs and arms dissolving. The poison is fast-acting, Baldar remarked. You will feel less pain than you deserve. The dancing spots before Fire Asterix Wolf's eyes coalesced into a single well of darkness as he pitched forward blindly. And the italics tell us an unworthy fate for heroes, but one written in the Book of Fate for those who commit the sin of ingratitude. So we turn to the instant kill paragraph. Thus died the hero Fire Asterix Wolf. Or perhaps the word died is inaccurate, for the universe, Fire Asterix Wolf's universe, is a mysterious place full of strange possibilities. One such possibility is reincarnation. Any reader finding himself or herself at this section may take the opportunity to create a new and hopefully better Fire Asterix Wolf by returning to the introductory pages of this book and rolling up new characteristics for him. Once recreated, Fire Asterix Wolf may be reborn at the beginning of his great adventure, lacking skill but not the knowledge he has gained. This knowledge will obviously allow him to retrace his steps quickly, avoiding past mistakes, exploring possibilities ignored on his former journeying. Thus died Fire Asterix Wolf. But his death was a new beginning. So I don't have a problem with it being an instant death for failing to answer the call to adventure at all. I'm going to invoke the sausage fingered bookmark rule, of course, to take us back to the cave where uh, we will make the other decision. I do have a problem with the fact that the first choice we get to make isn't really a choice at all. That's 
shoddy. I mean, I knew there was probably going to be an instant kill, but yeah, I wanted to test it out. Um, so I don't have a problem with it. I do have a problem with the amount of time it took as well. This is incredibly flabbily written. Small wonder that it only runs to 183 paragraphs. And again, it's fine being wordier in some ways. It's just a different choice. But there is just no real decision-making happening. And I've been... Yeah, I'm just passing the hour and five-minute mark. So uh, I guess I will agree to undertake his task. Thus, Fire Asterix Wolf, the wilderness barbarian, already exiled from the only home he ever knew, left the rude cave of Baldar the Hermit on a mission which was to carry him to broader horizons than he had ever suspected existed. He carried with him his sword, his bow, twenty arrows, a filled water skin to see him safely through what remained of the wilderness, some dried provisions, although Baldar assured him that hunting-gathering would soon be possible, it should be hunter-gathering, and two additional small gifts from Baldar. The first of these was a purse containing ten of the small golden coins which were, so Baldar assured him, the common currency of harm, and a slim, bladed dagger, poison-tipped, lest anyone attempt to steal his gold. He had accepted the dagger with reluctance at Baldar's insistence. He disliked the idea of poison, for such weapons went contrary to all he had been taught to believe in the wilderness. But he took it to please the old man and promised himself it would never be used except in the direst emergency. So there we go, got some swag from uh, moderately successfully beating up an old man and then offering to do him a favour. In his head, Fire Asterix Wolf carried instructions. Baldar had offered to draw him a map on cloth, but Fire Asterix Wolf was unfamiliar with such things and preferred the wilderness way of memory. This is my third go at this sentence. As Baldar described the landmarks, Fire Asterix Wolf pictured them in his mind, linking each, comma, with each, and had only to conjure the same vision as he walked in order to find his place. For a day and a night the going remained rough, but gradually, as Baldar had promised, the wilderness edge gave way to shrub, then grassland, increasingly fertile. He saw game, and eventually, as his small stock of provisions ran out, was forced to hunt. He proved skilful enough. All children of the wilderness, male and female, were taught archery from childhood, on account of the frequent wars between the various stone villages. And animals were easier prey than people, for at least they did not shoot back. His main concern was eating meat, which revolted him even when cooked as Baldar had shown him. A lifelong diet of fungus had conditioned his palate so that even vegetables seemed repulsive. But in the wilderness way he was a realist. If there was no fungus, then meat and vegetables it would have to be. Quite like the idea that, unlike fussy children who don't want to eat mushrooms, he only wants to eat mushrooms. That is a nice touch. He did, however, supplement his diet with a worthy supply of maggots and grubs, delicacies far more plentiful here than anywhere in the wilderness. For almost four days, Fire Asterix Wolf travelled without encountering a soul. Then, on the afternoon of the fourth day, we go into the italics. The ways of fate are strange, Fire Asterix Wolf. Roll one, only die. Compare the result with the table below, then turn to the section indicated. So, again, no actual choice. We randomly determine what is to happen. There's three different possibilities. I roll a five. With no warning whatsoever, a feathered arrow embedded itself in the ground at Fire Asterix Wolf's feet. 
The wilderness barbarian's reaction was instantaneous. Dropping and rolling, he drew his broadsword on the instant. As he rose, he crouched to his feet again. Two men broke cover from the shrub no more than fifteen feet away from him. Both were burly fellows, roughly dressed in the drab green homespun that marked the bandit guild of Harn. How do I even know that? How does he even know that? One carried a sword, the other a bow, which he was even now exchanging for his own sword. Both were grinning. Fast reactions, traveller, called the foremost of the bandits cheerfully. But now you may put away your weapon. We require only your belongings, not your knife. Still crouched, fire asterisk wolf watched them walk towards him. Swords held casually relaxed, a touch of swagger in their step. It was that swagger which gave him confidence. These men were too sure of themselves by half, accustomed to dealing with merchants and friars who offered gold in place of resistance. But their present prey was of a different metal. Their present opponent was a wilderness barbarian. What is it you require of me? he asked softly, maintaining his stance. Why, no more than what you have, traveller. A small donation for safe passage, a coin or two. He held out one broad hand, still grinning and with a swift movement of his sword, Fire Asterix Wolf severed it completely from his arm. An unfriendly gesture, but the wilderness way. Now Fire Asterix Wolf must fight both villains and defeat them. For bandit combat stats, turn to page 248 and calculate the outcome. Uh, the bandit with the severed hand begins the fight with 20 life points subtracted from his total, and will automatically lose 10 more each combat round in addition to any further damage Fire Asterix Wolf may occasion him. That is cool. Like credit where credit's due, it's a little combat trick I've never seen before. Putting a timer on the opponent as well. I am stealing that. I've done stuff in the past which involved putting a timer on the player. But yeah, this is awesome. This that's That's a really neat little combat trick. And I like how it ties into the narrative as well. Like hacking the arm off. That's genuinely great. What isn't great is that I now need to fight two bandits. So let's have a look at their stats. So they've got 272 life points apiece. One of them is now down to 252. Uh, they don't get a luck bonus. They get a strength bonus of 5. So they have 272. I have 170. I've had no chance to heal in any way, shape or form. I'm going to roll some dice and die, basically. Um, after four rounds when I kind of have to have a little lie down for the first time, I'll be taking, uh, depending on who goes first, I'll be taking four to six unanswered attacks, which seems like a lot. And given that everyone is basically just as good at fighting as everyone else, I think that's going to be fatal. So anyway, uh, I am going to roll a lot of dice. A lot of dice. The bandits have finished me off. I got one of them down to 94 life points. I hadn't touched the life total of the other one. Happily, it only took 12 rounds of combat. Felt like longer because I was rolling for multiple opponents. It is not an exciting way to end this recording, but it is the way this particular recording is going to end not with a bang but with a whimper an entirely predictable death 
I'm not even sure I could have beaten the two bandits meaningfully if I'd been on full life. I definitely felt like I was running their life totals down mostly faster than mine. That one point of luck, that luck bonus really does make a difference because combat is so attritional. That small advantage actually winds up feeling quite big. If you can get like a, a point of skill, enough points of skill on top of that, I think it's going to start feeling very big indeed. I cannot believe this was even vaguely playtested as a combat system. It is just atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. It doesn't feel exciting. It takes forever. You kind of know how it's going to pan out. I knew with the the bandits that there was very, very little chance of me coming out of that alive, having not, not had any healing whatsoever. No option to use my poison dagger. That's a shame. Did like the little combat wrinkle. That was cool. I guess I'm going to go away and see if I can finish this in some kind of legitimate way. But honestly, short of fixing all the dice rolls, I'm not convinced that even the best character is going to have much of a, a chance unless there's some healing immediately after those bandits. And let's not forget that during the course of this recorded playthrough, I got to make one, precisely one, decision. And one way allowed me to continue the adventure and the other way led to instant death. Yeah, I'm going to go away. I'm going to have a, a genuine effort to beat Sagas of the Demon Spawn Book 1 Fire Asterix Wolf. And then I'll come back to you in a few moments with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. It's 24 hours later and I have spent what feels like round about five years playing through Sagas of the Demon Spawn Book 1 Fire Asterix Wolf. There's a lot going on with this book and almost none of it is good. It manages to be both highly linear and brutally unforgiving, thus combining two bad things into one even worse thing. The art is almost all either workmanlike or straight up bad. The plot is largely hackneyed nonsense and there are some very ill-judged attempts to make the content more adult in theme. It's also almost completely broken. Simply making it out of the early areas is extremely unlikely by my reckoning. Now let's break that down a bit. There are some genuinely bizarre mechanical choices. At numerous points, you are told that you have recovered from your injuries, but you're not told to regain any life points. It's possible that the author intended you to infer from the text that your life points return to maximum. That's not the way these things are usually done. Usually you spell out mechanical effects. And also in some bits it tells you that Fire Asterix Wolf is hurt and doesn't instruct you to revise your life point total down either. So it's not at all clear what the reading of the rules is intended to be. With the most obvious reading of the rules, which is that your life points don't change unless you are specifically told that they change, you can end up doing four fights in a row with the chance to heal a maximum of 100 life points during two of those combats. So you get two straight fights and then two fights in which you can heal potentially 50 life points each. That means 
looking at the life points of your opponents, you need to deal over 1300 points of damage without dying. You will have an average of about 400 life points to play with. If you don't have a decent luck score, you will do damage at broadly the same rate as your opponent, modified slightly about whether you've got a higher strength than them. But if their strength is in a similar range to yours, you're going to be actually chipping away at each other at broadly the same rate. So you need to do more than three times your own life points in damage without succumbing. That's highly unlikely, especially given the maddening need to pause for a breather at regular intervals in exactly the same way that Conan doesn't. I don't think it's likely, even with really good stats, to be honest, but I'm not crunching the numbers, because life is too short, and those combats take forever to run. In addition, most of the monsters have superfluous scores for things like charm and attraction. Uh, one, the illusion lizard, only has two stats and doesn't have speed, courage, or luck listed, which means that you have no way of calculating who goes first in combat. One of J.H. Brennan's signature moves is forgetting or ignoring how his own terrible systems work. And that's something we're going to be coming back to. Let's talk a bit about the structure. It is so linear. The action is broken up into discrete acts, which draw attention to how few choices you actually make to get there. There's almost more decisions that are made on the roll of a die than there are decisions you get to participate in. There's barely any attempt to connect the different sections logically. There's a trap in a castle where the possible outcomes are appear in an alchemical lab with no idea how you got there, wake up in a strange bed, appear in a cage above a courtyard, find yourself standing on the battlements of the castle, appear beneath a tree outside the castle, or meet a lich-type fellow who's on his last legs. That is quite the varied trap. I suppose it is just technically a teleport trap, but one that has no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. It reminds me of the D&D games I used to run for my friends when I was 12, which were basically a series of disconnected vignettes based on whatever random thoughts were firing in my brain. Now, John Woo allegedly said that whenever he was stuck for a plot point, he just had a man jump through a window with a gun and then tried to work out how and why he was there. Brennan has the approach that working out how and why anything happens is just a waste of your valuable time. When in doubt, just teleport a character somewhere or failing that, just have something teleport to where the character is. At times, it feels almost like a David Lynch movie in the final act, where you're really struggling to parse what's going on. The fact that there's at least one section that doesn't tell you where to turn next only adds to this disorientating dreamlike atmosphere. Congratulations. Your adventure is over, maybe? You just stay wherever it is you've ended up? The number of sections without exit seems to increase as you get further into the adventure. Excitingly, there's one mandatory section which points to nowhere. So the game, as published, is completely broken to the extent that you can't complete it. Because I am a professional, I searched the internet and found an online playthrough which suggested the next likely intended section, since the French edition of the book actually fixed the broken part. The bit you go to is a complete non sequitur, but hey, what was I expecting? 
there are a lot of instant death sections because writing branching adventure paths is hard and time consuming. Uh, you need to write some notes or possibly even draw a diagram of how various bits connect. Far easier just to write whatever comes into your head and if you find yourself getting confused then just kill the player and make them start again so that there's actually only one route through the slightly convoluted bit you've done by accident. I thought Creature of Havoc got a bit oppressive with the instant deaths, but it's got nothing on Saga's The Demon Spawn Book 1 Fire Asterix Wolf. The way the sections are organised tend to suggest that it was written in one draft as well. Most sections are extremely close to each other, although that does change a bit as you get deeper into the book, which tells me that the author didn't have a total section number in mind and didn't want to go back and muddle them up once he'd finished. I mean, let's be honest, once they've agreed to print the damn thing, you get paid the same regardless of how many drafts you do. And that approach might well fly with bashing out a children's novel. And don't forget, I have said that uh, I really, really loved at least two of his children's novel when I read them as a child. But game books actually require a design phase and multiple drafts if they're going to make logical sense on any level. And J.H. Brennan is just unwilling to put in the time and the effort required for any element of gamebook design. He's not willing to design a system that makes any sense. He's not willing to design a narrative that makes more than the most bare-bones sense. And he's certainly not prepared to design encounters in such a way as they make sense. There's a version of Elric of Melnibonet's sword Stormbringer in this book, which is particularly cruel as it reminds you that you could be reading a Michael Moorcock novel. And you can find the exact same sword in either a ruined castle or a stone circle, which are the only two locations you can go to. So there's no way not to find Tesco own brand Stormbringer, which makes the preceding choice broadly meaningless. After you find it in either of these two disparate locations, the author just teleports you to the next bit because he wants to set you a puzzle and he doesn't really care how you get there. Little Stormbringer does make every subsequent fight more or less a walkover because it's got a lifesteal mechanic. Um, I am kind of curious as to how he balances that very broken mechanic in later books. My suspicion is that he doesn't because I don't think he's ever played one of his own books. He also doesn't believe that it's necessary to create a world that has any kind of internal logic and knock off Stormbringer being available in two locations, even though it's definitely the same sword, is just one facet of that. There's times where he will require you to test your luck and depending on whether you're lucky or not, the exact same object will turn out to be deadly or not deadly. And that's really bad for immersion. It's one thing if you say your character picks a vial at random from six and then you make a luck test to find out which one you picked. But if you have the precise same actions result randomly in two completely different outcomes you are effectively creating two completely different realities, and that, that, for me, completely shatters immersion. Now, I should talk about the puzzle which follows the discovery of Pound Stretcher Stormbringer. Uh, this is a letter substitution cipher, for which the author has gone to the trouble of designing his own script, 
which I suppose kind of resembles the Enochian script recorded by the Elizabethan polymath John Dee, who's like a fascinating figure from history if you don't know him. You get the translation of another piece of writing which is written in the script, and you can use that to help you decode the first inscription. And that's kind of cool because you haven't got all of the letters from the first inscription. You've only got some of them, so you have to make maybe a kind of educated guess. So on paper, this is actually a vaguely fun problem. Uh, there are, of course, issues. One is that a lot of the characters in the handwritten script are incredibly similar, making identification very hard. The second is that the author has not put much effort into making sure that he actually draws the characters the same way each time. So with the letters all looking very similar to begin with, there's tremendous scope for confusion. And that means that what should have been merely a tedious task winds up being a tedious task that takes a very long time. It's possible someone less dyslexic than me might have a better time with it, but I somehow doubt it. There's multiple bits where he's clearly forgotten how his own system works. Classic J.H. Brenham. Uh, the text tells you to roll 2d6 and compare the result to your luck score. If you roll higher than your luck score, it's usually an instant death. Of course, your luck is the result of rolling 2d6 and multiplying the result by 8. So the minimum luck you can have is 16. You will literally always succeed on these tests. And this is a good thing, because the result of failing is almost always death, and you can't avoid at least one of the luck tests. There's a special power that requires you to roll 2d6 against one of your stats um, that also always works as well, which provides another small semblance of an edge in combat, so that too is nice. He's not very good at tying the mechanics used to the world apart from luck, because... With luck, you can just arbitrarily decide on two completely different versions of the universe based on whether or not you succeed. So you do get to use your charm, and you get to use your charm on an ill-tempered half-ape, half-cat creature. And if you are more charming than the cat creature, then you get to make a roll under your charm. But if the cat creature is more charming than you, you have to fight it. Why can you charm an angry ape cat, but not any of the actual people you meet? Uh, who knows? Perhaps ape cats just really hate to murder someone who might be an entertaining dinner guest. It's like he just doesn't fundamentally understand what charm a stat he himself has come up with is supposed to represent. I suppose the easiest reading is to say that it represents in some sense your ability to intimidate people which makes, I guess, a tiny amount of sense. But realistically, it's not the first place you go when you think of charm as a concept. Finally, I guess we do need to talk about the magic system. Has the author managed to make this as annoying as the rest of the system? Of course he has. The premise is simple enough. You get a power stat uh, about two-thirds of the way through the book. And then a list of spells, and each of the spells costs power to cast. So far, so good. This seems perfectly reasonable. Plenty of magic systems in fantasy role-playing games use a variant of this system. The first problem is that Fire Asterix Wolf is a reluctant wizard 
to the extent that you need to roll a four or more on one die to even get the chance to cast a spell. Once Fire Asterix Wolf has overcome his revulsion, you then need to roll 2d6 and roll a six or more in order for the spell to work. And that means that you'll actually get to cast a spell slightly more than one in four times. Because what all players love is being given a power and then stopped from using it the vast majority of the time. The spells themselves are very standard, mostly things that give you a little edge in combat. There's some that allow you to escape from combat. And there's two different ways to go back to previous sections, which is faintly nice. Uh, functionally, it's a kind of save point that only works 30% of the time. Oh, by the way, if you fail to cast a spell, the power uh, that you've spent is completely lost as well. Is there anything laudable I can actually say about this book? Well, I will say the writing style is fine. Brennan has his style, which I think plays better with younger readers than adults, but he knows how to write serviceable prose that is clear and direct. His informal, chatty, authorial asides seem even more out of place in this more adult book. And frankly, they do set my teeth on edge a bit. But to be honest, that could be because I'm 43 and I've forgotten what actual joy feels like. Uh, the long passages are a chore to read out loud. And they're also bizarrely immersion breaking because if you're playing an adventure game book, you want the opportunity to make decisions. That's the thing the game book provides. You want that opportunity. And having it largely taken away from you even if the writing is actually perfectly serviceable, breaks immersion in a slightly odd way. And at least the long passages work well enough on the page. There's probably a basically enjoyable hack fantasy novel for youngsters in there somewhere. There's some genuinely nice imagery, I will say, towards the end as you approach the city of Belgardium and discover it's been completely destroyed by demons. There's a bit where you get to meet a convoy of refugees who've been struck blind by the cataclysm. And it's a great set piece, really evocative, because you get to see the effects of all this destruction on the people before you even get to see the ruins of the city itself. So there's definitely some pearls among the muck in there, but you do have to wait a long time for it. In fact, the whole final act of the book becomes faintly enjoyable as you rummage through the ruins of the city in search of the woman you've been tasked with saving. There's not much mechanical interest to it, but I was left with strong images of the devastation wrought by the Demon Horde, and it was a good way to finish. The book also ties up fairly neatly, while also leaving some decent cliffhangers, and doesn't have any genuinely gigantic plot holes. It doesn't do the thing that he sometimes does of forgetting how he started the book, before he's got to the end, he does at least vaguely remember what the setup for the book was. So that's good. Uh, obviously, it finishes on a cliffhanger. There are lots of unanswered questions, I guess, to tease you into playing the next book in the series, which I won't be doing unless I decide to do some kind of demented charity live stream of it, which I might actually do possibly over Christmas if I do it okay with my schoolwork. It's not really a compliment, but I will say the subdued but frequently present sexual content comes across as more 
carry-on film than anything else, and I perversely quite liked it for that very dated quality. I mean, it's thoroughly regressive in its attitude to women, of course. If this were written today, I'd have a huge problem with it. But it was a trope of fantasy stories of the time, which were marketed largely to teenage boys. And marketing to teenage boys in and of itself isn't a problem. But of course, the issue is that so much pop culture was and is directed at teenage boys and theoretical adult men with the emotional maturity of teenage boys. That continues to be a huge issue in our culture. Sometimes choosing to sleep with a woman is fatal, which does at least make the female cast feel less interchangeable. Uh, I will say there's also a section that requires a successful attraction test to avoid being sex murdered by a woman who's actually a black widow spider. So the more handsome you are, the less vulnerable to black widow spiders you are, which obviously makes all the sense in the world. Uh, but it does mean that I got to test both charm and attraction during the course of the book, so at least I got my little wish there. I also listened to a good chunk of the Ramones back catalogue while I was fighting my way through this book, and that's never wasted time as far as I'm concerned. Is Sagas of the Demonsborn, book one, Fire Asterix, Wolf, the worst game book I've ever played? Yes. Yes. I don't think it's even that close. It's simultaneously too long and too short, which is a good trick. It's wildly deadly. The system is so bad as to be functionally unplayable, when the author can even remember how the system actually is supposed to work. It's one of the worst things I've ever subjected myself to. That's it. That's what it boils down to. This is bad. It's not even funny bad for the most part. It's just bad. It's even worse than Space Assassin, and I do not say that lightly. Amazingly, there is a digital edition of all four books in the Sagas of the Demon Spawn series, which is about a fiver. So if you want to subject yourself to the nightmare cheaply, you can. For my part, I'll be bidding J.H. Brennan a fond farewell for hopefully a decent chunk of time, and I'll be back in a few weeks with another fighting fantasy book and a palpable sense of relief. In the meantime, you can contact me by emailing me at hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.